You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. Whenever I think about pop art, I I just always imagine the challenge of trying to explain the merit behind a picture of a soup can. You know, the, the soup can with actual nourishing food inside of it, something that can sustain life, is seen as disposable, but somebody's drawing of that soup can is seen as a priceless cultural artifact to hang in the museum for generations to look at. But that is the unique perspective and contribution that Andy Warhol brought to the art world. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. I thought it's a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I have another Naperville art teacher, Kelly Henriksen. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, So today, we are going to be talking about Andy Warhol, or as he became known professionally, Andy Warhol. Um, I don't know why he dropped the A. I didn't find out that information either. I remember seeing at one point because the last show I attended was his at the Art Institute yeah. last January, like a year ago. Yeah, I I I, re- I knew this at one point, and I I I feel like it was a ridiculous reason. Like there was a typo in a review of one of his shows where they <laughs> called him Warhol instead of Warhalla, and he just like ran with it. Um, I have no idea if that is actually true, but I'm going to go with that because it sounds good. And I feel like that's yeah. what Andy Warhol would have done. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, I agree. So, you know, to get into a little bit of his background, you know, he was born, as I said, his his name at birth was Andy Warhol. He was born August 6th, 1928, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Both of his parents were immigrants from Austria-Hungary. Um, his father came to America in 1914, and then uh, his mother came over and joined him in 1921. So then Warhol was born a few years after both of his parents had reunited in America. Uh, when he was in third grade, unfortunately, Warhol suffered, and I'm, I'm going to probably mispronounce this, Sydenham's chorea, 
which is some sort of a, like a nervous disease. And when I say nervous, um, I, I don't mean like anxiety. I mean it ha- having to do with the nervous system. And it caused involuntary movements. So I, I can only just imagine how difficult and scary that would be in third grade to not be in control of your body, you know, to have those movements. And that- it's almost like being on lockdown too, that he was, was home and he was, did all this drawing, right? Isn't that what was said that he, he got really into drawing at that point and it was something he could do at that time while he was sick. Yeah, he was he was sick, uh, and and not only with with that, but also like scarlet fever and and other things like that. So he did spend a lot of time in bed, and you know, a, as most of us would do, he listened to music, he drew, he found ways to pass the time, and he said that was formative for him. That was really um, a big impact on him. And some people say, like, it impacted him in making him a bit of a hypochondriac, but it also, like, impacted his view. Like, that's where he developed his love, I think, of pop culture as he was listening to music and learning to draw. And he was, um, he, he said he decorated the space around his bed with pictures of movie stars and stuff like that. And that's what he was drawing and that's what he was into. And, and I felt like, I have been fortunate that I have always had had very good health, but I felt such a connection to like, that's how I learned to draw by drawing, you know, the things from pop culture, the cartoon characters and stuff of video game characters that, that I loved, that I enjoyed as a child. And so I found that to be a really relatable bit of his biography. Um, but also just, you know, like I said, a, a difficult situation that he made the best of. And so then, you know, he continued, um, he did recover. He was in, in better health, um, down the line. He wasn't stuck in his bed for his entire life, but, you know, after high school, he had to think about what he wanted to do. And he always knew he wanted to be in the arts. I guess initially he had planned to go into art education. He wanted to become an art teacher, but he ended up going to the Carnegie Institute of Technology, which is now Carnegie Mellon University. And he earned his BFA in 1949, the Bachelor's of Fine Arts degree, and he was studying like commercial art. Um, he then went on to New York later that year where he started his work uh, doing magazine illustrations and advertisements. Uh, his first commission was actually to, to draw shoes for Glamour magazine. And I guess he made quite the impression on people because, like, you know, critics were saying, like, nobody could draw shoes like Andy, you know. Right. Yeah. I've never been overly fond of his shoe pieces, but, like. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, um, when I went to that exhibit of his, they had walls of drawings of shoes and then the shoes in gold. Uh And you that he made later on. and. They were all so incredible to see all together. I guess maybe the impact was because they were together. And it was a giant wall of all of these shoes. And I'd never seen all of them before. I thought, I think maybe I saw three. And so here it was like, there are hundreds of shoes. And I thought, wow, he really drew a lot. I mean, and, and did it well. I mean, I, I don't know if I could wear any of his shoes. I think they're for smaller footed yeah. people or size feet. I don't know. But anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, like... I, 
I mean, I guess I should clarify. I'm, I'm not saying like anything wrong with the way he drew shoes. It's just like right. it never really struck me as anything like I always looked at them as like, well, it's competently drawn. I'm not going to knock it for its, its his his draftsmanship abilities or anything. It's just like it didn't catch my eye. Like the color schemes didn't see they didn't have that flair that like I think of when I think of Andy Warhol because his later stuff was so much more vivid. Um, yeah, which, you're right. They, which, they're very black and white. They're they're not fancy like all the other pop art that he's well known for. for yeah, sure. Yeah, they're very traditional. Now, getting away from the shoes a little bit, he he did that as his first commission. And like I said, like 1949. And this is something that I I had always been a little bit wrong in in my timeline because by the 1950s, he was starting to exhibit in galleries. I always thought he had worked for a longer period in the like magazine and illustration and advertisement world. But really like within within the first decade out, outside of college, he was he was exhibiting in galleries as a fine artist. Um and it seems like he he did pretty well pretty quickly. One thing I found really interesting, though, is like, you know, by the 1960s, he established his studio, The Factory. And he was always drawn to these methods that like a number of my students might refer to as cheating. You know, like he would trace stuff. He was doing the photo transfers and everything like that. He was all about efficiency, um, even in his, naming his studio the factory. Like he talked about how he wanted to be like a machine with his right. his process, which I found really interesting because it is so it is so antithetical or the opposite of how I imagine the artistic process, because I see art as all about creativity and that human insight. And right. he was coming from it with this lens of loving mechanization and mass production. And that was his goal. Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, I, I think I think you're right about the process. It was like he almost took a little bit of that illustration copy technique yeah. and then built upon it and, and rolled with it and and. I don't work that way either. So it's kind of interesting to see it from this, well, I'm going to make so much it in such a small time. I don't have to worry about anything. Um, what do you imagine? I have to ask you this, not to cut you yeah. off, but will you imagine his personality was like, as you describe his art? Cause I, I saw video footage of him and mm -hmm. like David Bowie in this exhibit. And you could tell how Bowie was a little taken back. Like, I don't really want to be videotaped or anything. I just want to hang out, you know? And so this was interesting that he had no problem just saying, Hey, no, we're, this is what we're doing. So I, I just wonder, was he like that in everything? I, I don't know. I didn't know him. So. I, obviously I, I, I never met the man could not speak to with anything, you know, really grounded in solid fact, but I'm going to feel free to just speculate wildly. And from everything that I have read, he seems like he would be a really irritating person to me. Um, like, yeah. like if you look at, he, he looks like he was one box of stuff away from an episode of hoarders. I mean, when he passed away, it took Sotheby's over a week. I think it was like nine days just to auction off his stuff. And then they had 
just shy of 650 boxes of Andy's stuff that they took over to the museum, um, the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh. And so, like, he just was well known to be collecting and, and not just like not all special mementos like he was collecting just junk that was all around. He was filming stuff that like he was filming everything. As you said, people are just hanging out and he's filming it like he was known to be doing that just constantly. And then he would exhibit these films and like. From what I understand, they were painfully boring to watch because his idea was about studying the mundane. And so he he would show a video of like half an hour of somebody sleeping, you know, (laughs) like it was it it seems just like uh, on some level ridiculous. But on another level, I get where he's coming from. And I think it it, there's uh, this quote of his where he talks about about Coca-Cola. And I think that's a great, a great insight into his, his philosophy, because one of the big ideas he talked about is this notion of pop culture as like this leveler. You know, he's, he talks about how, you know, the homeless person on the street drinks Coke and the, the president drinks Coke. He talks about how, like, basically everybody, no matter who you are, no matter how much money, fame, stature you have, you enjoy that same beverage. Right. And it doesn't matter how much you paid for it. It's the same ingredients. Everybody gets the same refreshment. And so it is that common culture that ties everybody together, that cuts across those lines that we see as these divisions because of people's cultural backgrounds, because of their, you know, race or their, their socioeconomic status or whatever. It's like, there are these elements that all of us agree are delightful, such as carbonated water that's loaded with sugar. You know, um, we all enjoy the same garbage. We all have the same guilty pleasures and they're accessible to everybody. Um, and so, like, philosophically, I, I find that very appealing. A, a lot of his a lot of his stuff and the way like the the way he and, and artists always have to do this. Like he pushed it as far as that idea could go to figure out, like, where that idea has merit artistically and right. where where we lose the thread. And so that's why, like, he had that collection of all sorts of stuff to figure out what are the great, what's the soup can versus what is the truly disposable cultural artifact that we don't need. Um, So, like, like I said, there, there's some stuff there that I find really interesting, and some stuff that's that he produced that I wasn't always on board with. But I think you could say that about everybody. Yeah. Um, And then, like, one of the things that I I always think has to be remembered is, like, he was not always universally loved. Like, some of the the critics uh, felt like his work was shallow. And I always find it interesting because it's like, on the one hand, yeah, it's kind of shallow, celebrity-obsessed. You know, he's hanging out at Studio 54 and having David Bowie come to his studio and hang out and all that sort of stuff. 
but at the same time, it's like, can you think of a more perfect reflection of like the 1980s than totally right. shallow it's consumers? Totally, it, it, yeah, everything was that same way. Um, I feel like maybe critics were mad that he was making money this whole time. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? He was doing well, even if his work wasn't well received. So, I mean, maybe that was their, uh, you know, they were annoyed by him by that. But um, yeah, yeah, he really kind of just is the symbol of the eighties in that realm. Cause he, yeah, I don't know. His work is just yeah. so neat. I, I like that he changed over time. You know, he did a lot of drawings and his work changed over time. And I like how he collaborated with others. Even, you know, at some realm he didn't enjoy videos or but the other people didn't enjoy videos um, being taken of them, but he worked with Basquiat, um, you know, Keith Haring. And um, a lot of that art was in his show the pieces that they collaborated together. And that was incredible. Um, yeah. So ab- that, he did have that like attraction, even if he was, you know, not always well received, you know, um, they wanted to work with him. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things. Cause it's like early in his career, he was an innovator. And then by the 1970s, 1980s, you could see it in different ways. You know, you could see him as, the older person trying to stay relevant, trying to show he's still cool. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, I think actually what's probably more accurate is he saw these young innovative artists and he was excited by that artistic development. And he he also wanted to help them is the sense that I got. Like he collaborated with Basquiat at a time when Warhol didn't need the association with Basquiat. You know, today Basquiat is is so well known, but like Warhol was bought a a postcard off Basquiat while he was, you know, on the streets selling right. things just to to make ends meet. Um and so I I think that is an interesting connection and like I say I I feel like he went through this progression where he became almost sort of like a, a you know, an influential figure who was still relevant in his own right, but also helping to to guide the next generation, which I think is always cool because you see that from a number of artists who, whether they do that by going back to teach in a, in a university True. or, yeah. you know, collaborating with younger artists as, as he did, I think it's always cool to see he was giving back in some ways. And that provides me with a lovely segue to the piece we're going to be talking about today, which is his zebra piece, um, which was silk screened. And this was made in 1983. He was commissioned by one of his friends who was a philanthropist, and he wanted him to create a series of prints on endangered species. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds 
like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. So there were 10 different animal designs that he made. I've always personally loved the the zebra print um, that we've got here from 1983. Yeah, that's the one that I know the most. I don't know if I've seen all 10. I, and, and these were not on display at that show, which is kind of surprising. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, they might be in they might be in like private collections or something like that. But the, the zebra ones always caught my eye. And so that's the one I wanted to focus on today because also it's, you know, silk screened and feels very much in line with his style and yeah, everything absolutely. that he's known for, that iconic style. So what's jumping out to you about this piece? Oh, I I really love the color and how he, you know, just even that turquoise background with, with the reds and oranges and how it pops, the zebra pops forward. I think, I don't know, I just love the detail that he included too. Um, the line work is beautiful. I don't know. This this one I've seen a lot. I, I would love to see if the others look similar to this one. Um, but I but I love all the detail in this. Do you happen to know what's the size of this this print? Is it is it rather large? Like um uh off the top of my head, I wanna say it's around like three feet squared. But okay. I'm gonna have to look that up. Sure. Yeah, I don't I don't know either, but I, I love it. I think it's it's so it's a gorgeous piece and it definitely reminds me of the rest of his, uh, prints. They're great. Yeah. What, what, what I'm noticing is like right off the bat, like the, the square, the square composition is always a little bit difficult. I feel like to, to plan out a good composition. I like how the zebras coming in off the edge, you know, yeah. Um, the balance of the space on there is working really well. I like the, the zebra seems to be like looking over its shoulder and the head kind of yeah. sloped down, which when I think about, when I think about the intention behind this of a poster for endangered species, there's something about like the heads kind of hanging down and it's looking back at you. Like I kind of feel I, I kind of feel bad for this Z like this, this feels like it's like, like Eeyore or something like that. Yeah. He looks a little sullen, like not very happy or sad or, um, yeah, I, I wonder, I, I wish I had read more about this piece because it would be nice to know, like, was he really trying to make all of the animals look sad that he created for this or was it just this particular one? Um, all, all the ones that I have seen are stylistically similar where it's like a close cropped, you know, picture of the, the animal's face and, and it's similar bright, bold color schemes and all of that sort of stuff. I feel like the, the sad tone does 
it does feel intentional to me. Um, it feels like it's one of those things where it's like, you know, as the viewer, I, I feel like, I feel like I just broke that zebra's heart by landing it on the endangered species list. And I just, I like, I want to give it a hug and I want to explain like, (laughs) it wasn't me. I didn't do this to you. Yes. (laughs) Um, but like, but it forces me as a viewer to grapple with that. And because like the zebra seems to be looking back, I see its eye, like it's looking right at me. It's a little bit, it's confrontational without being aggressive. There's a, like a resignation about it. And it's like, it's confronting me in the sense of like, just making me deal with its presence. I have to, I have to grapple with yeah. what its plight is. Um and I find it really interesting that he's able to convey that tone while also having it so bright and bold and vivid. Like the color scheme reads as fun and excitement. Yes. You know, like the, the color scheme feels like like this is a magical zebra that I want to I want to ride on or something like that. Like right. it, it feels like yeah, it feels like a comic book type of color scheme. Yeah, the details. But he, he does look so sad and disapp- or disappointed with the viewer. Like, how dare you? Yeah, so there, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of like a, a contradiction in those term in those to some extent. I feel like the the color scheme grabs my attention and then the focus on the details gets me to those expressive qualities that that gets me to sympathize with the the zebra and and uh it makes me want to rethink how i'm treating animals and stuff like that um although i I mean maybe that's maybe that's just me as like the the bleeding heart lefty because like i i know that uh like Andy Warhol just referred to it and, and he, he meant this in, in like a nice way, but you know, he, he talked about he, this as like animals in makeup, um, which I mean, 1980s, I think animals in makeup, uh, it just reminds me of the problematic history of testing cosmetics on animals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but I feel like he, he meant it more as just like, I'm making the animals more colorful and festive. I'm elevating the animals is, is how I would imagine he meant that. Yeah. I think that makes more sense. Yeah. I think I'm just a horrible person who sees terrible connections and everything. <laughs> You're not horrible. I, I always have to make, I always have to make the rule like, okay, if I say something horrible, it's a joke. That should be our baseline <laughs> understanding. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I feel like this is a, a really interesting piece. Like, like I said, I love the zebras. I like the the composition, the way it's coming in, the balance of the the positive and negative space. Um, so high contrast, so vivid. Like I said, it feels like that zebra could be a superhero. I feel like that ze- it, it's like a it's like a Superman comic book color scheme to me. Yeah, for sure. I would love to know that if the were these on display. Um, you know, anywhere else, like his, the person that, um, you know, had him create these, were these part of a zoo or were they part of other material? Did they use them, what they use them for? Because it would be interesting to know, um, if, if, if these animals then did come off the endangered list at that time frame. you know? 
Yeah, I don't know how effective that was in terms of getting animals off the endangered species list. I think it was more an awareness type of campaign. Um, Like, this was a part of a series, and, you know, they were exhibited. They've been sold, you know, so they're in various collections all all over the place. Um, And they've been seen in different contexts. Uh, I did look up it... I was I was close. It's thirty eight by thirty eight inches. So I, I said about three feet. Um, so my bad on that. I'm always happy to admit a mistake and and do a correction when I can find the actual fact. But uh, I mean that's that's pretty big to make these big screen prints of these animals, and and it has such an impact on. I don't know if this zebra is is happy or mad. I mean because it's such a contrast with color and the expression on its face. I can't stop looking at it. I have to be honest. No, I, I, I yeah, <laughs> I, I think you're right. Like it, you can't, you can't see the expressive, like the, like the, the mouth and stuff like that. And, and maybe it's just me. Maybe it just looks sad to me because I know the context of an endangered species. And because I generally look at every, interaction through the lens of like, why does this person hate me? And so like, you know, I just naturally see some sort of disdain, contempt, disappointment in everybody's eyes as they look at me. Um, so, so, so maybe, maybe this is like the, the roar shark just exposing my connections to, to the subject. But, but I, I see it as an, interesting balance between what I would see as bright, bold, happy, fun colors and sad subject matter that gets me, it draws me in and then gets me to think. And I I think he's effective in that. Absolutely. Yep. Anything else you want to say about it? No, I just really love it. And now I really want to go look up what other, the other animals are. I really kind of want to, because I don't think I've seen all these before. I've just seen, I've seen the zebra and I can't think of if there is another one I've seen or not. But these were not there's part an of eagle. that show. Um, okay. There's an eagle I've seen. Some, like like I said, there there was a series of, of ten of them. Um, I can't name all of them off the top of my head because it's the end of the day, and I don't yeah. even know what day of the week <laughs> it is. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess to wrap it up, I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Lou, is this something to look at? The lab, the lab, is this something to learn from? Or the Lou? British for fashion. Yeah, there's the a Lou. joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. I would like to see it last longer, you know, whether it's at his museum or, um, you know, I expect to see this at the Contemporary in Chicago first. And um, I'm surprised that this wasn't in a private collection that got, uh, or, or that the Art Institute inherited recently when they built on that extra wing. Cause they did get some of his pieces, but um, I, I don't, I haven't seen all of these animal ones. I'd love to see them. Um, maybe, maybe I, I just like his work a little bit more and would want to see more of it. Um, I expect this to be in somewhere in California though. Like it's got a California kind of vibe in a way. Yeah. Um, but, but maybe I'm wrong, but, I don't know. I, I would pick the first one. I'd pick the Louvre. Like, put it in there for a while, and maybe it moves around. Um, I don't so you feel know. like it's a museum piece? 
This is one for, yeah. for the ages, for generations to appreciate. I also could see this on any like zoo type, you know, like brochure or something or, you know, kind of yeah. cycle through that way as well. Um, and that it would work really well. Um, but I'm sure it would be a hassle to get those copyright issues, you know, like to be able to use it. Um, I don't know. It's, it's nicely done. Um, I'd, I'd like to know more about it, I think is my thing. Yeah. Um, they definitely focus on all the celebrities that he, you know, recreated um, all those screen prints of, but they don't, I've not really seen anything but the zebra before. Yeah. It is kind of funny how, when you think about like in his body of work, he's best known for all of the stuff that is kind of shallow. And then when he does something that was for a noble cause, trying to create something for awareness of these endangered species and, and help out with conservation, that's kind of forgettable. (laughs) It's like, it's like, Oh, they, he had too many items. So they had to stuff it in the basement and not bring it out or something. Right. well, I mean, it, it's, it's at least not as well known or not as prominently displayed as some of the, the other stuff. Um, but you see it as a museum piece, one to enjoy for, for the ages. Um, I'm actually going to go, I'm actually going to say the Lou. And the oh. reason I say, I, I, the reason I say that is as much as I find this aesthetically pleasing, I don't want it around forever because I don't want there to be endangered species because I am not a monster. Unlike some people who like to always have to keep (laughs) awareness campaigns for generations to come, we should always be thinking about those animals that we're we're mistreating. I'm joking, of course. (laughs) When I I say something horrible, it's a joke. Oh, it's so funny. But, yeah, I, I... I, I, I generally agree. I think it's a, a really strong piece, actually. I think it's, it, of his body of work, I feel like this is hitting a number of boxes. That's why that's why I picked this specific one in terms of, like, the colors, the aesthetics, you know, a worthwhile cause, and his screen printing methods. You know, it's fantastic. I love the layering, the offset, you know, all of that. I think it it, it is actually a, a beautiful, stunning piece, and I like that there's a little bit more to it. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is fun. It's, it's so fun to talk about work and seeing new art. It's great. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and the website WhoArtedPodcast.com. Podcast done.